Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Frank Cottle. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Henry. It's a pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure to have you, sir. Uh, Frank is the CEO of Alliance Virtual Offices and chairman of the Alliance Business Centers Network. He is a recognized expert on flexible working, the virtual office movement, and third place working. If you haven't heard that uh, term before, we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, prior to creating the Alliance brand, Frank successfully operated his own portfolio of business centers in multiple locations across North America. Frank has spent the past 30 years delivering business services that are finely tuned to the workplace needs of startups, entrepreneurs, and growing small and medium businesses. Over the last uh, years, he has worked with tens of thousands of business owners and coupled with the unique global management perspective that he has, has become the go-to authority on flexible and remote work. So in this episode, we're going to chat with Frank about his very interesting journey to uh, where he is today, his entrepreneurial journey. And we're going to do a deep dive on the concept of virtual office, the practices rather of virtual offices, and how we can use that to start and grow our small businesses. Uh, Frank lives in Orange County, California. And so once again, Frank Cottle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. After that wind-up, I'm not sure what I, what more I can do. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but there's a lot here we're going to learn from you. There's no doubt. Um, I'd like to start the journey way back when, if I got it right, you got a bachelor's in English. Uh, yes, English literature, as a matter of fact, and which is absolutely worthless, I might point out. <laughs> uh, and that immediately, as I worked my way through college, that immediately put me in a position where I knew I had no career ahead of me. So I started uh, working my way through college as a commercial diver. Interesting. Uh, working on uh, oil rigs and uh, ship maintenance and things of that nature. Went through the uh, Navy's uh, UDT, Underwater Demolition School in Coronado Island, which is the SEAL training school. Um, and dove on uh, the Pacific SEAL fleet, which was uh, some of the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense's, basically the spy ships in Southeast Asia. Went from that, decided that was not a career. It was just an interesting thing to do, to yachting. So I bit yeah. from the frying pan to the fire. And, uh, now, well, where did you grow up? I grew up in Newport Beach, California, Balboa, in San Clemente, California, and inland in Covina, California. And so then when you went into the yacht business, did you move to Fort Lauderdale or did you do it from Newport uh, Beach? No, stayed stayed in Newport Beach. Newport Beach was the home home base of our company. Uh, And uh, so uh, from the early 70s through the very early 80s, I basically was um, a 'er ne'er-do-well that just raced big yachts around and uh, pretended (laughs) I knew what I was doing. Um, but what, what happened then was kind of interesting. Um, in our business, we're in the very upper end of the business. And we're in the very upper end of the business. And I had the opportunity to meet with an awful lot of very successful people, leaders in industry, celebrities, politicians. And fortunately, they thought I was a nice young man and wanted to help me out. And so they shared a lot of their stories and a lot of their own success stories with me that just as you're doing today with your audience. Right. And that inspired me. And after a number of years of learning from some of these folks who were very mentoring to me in my career, 
um, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to uh, change careers. Uh, it was sort of an epiphany that took me on that change, actually. I was sitting in the brokerage one day listening to a sales activity going on. We were the largest yacht brokerage in the world at that time. And listening to this activity going on, it hit me like a rock. I'll never be an owner so long as I'm a broker. Mm. And that hit me. I was 28, 29 years old, and I thought, I'm out of here. That's it. Wow. So I sold out my interest within about a year and, and uh, moved on. Started in the commercial real estate industry, uh, land banking. Uh, we come from a, a ranching and farming family here in California. And so the concept of land is very important in our family. And it was very easy for me to see if I could buy a piece of land in the path of progress and could afford to sit on it for a while, then I would actually make some money. Uh, so we started a company to develop uh, uh, buildings on the inside of large commercial planned, master planned projects. Uh, and from 1980 to 1990, we built 42 buildings across the southwestern United States. So every 110 days, a new project came out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was all with the theory of, of land banking. And there are these funny little things called executive suites at the time. It was yep. a nas nascent industry. And that was the smallest amount of bricks and mortar that could go on the biggest piece of land to tie it down and pay for the dirt pay for the mm -hmm. land. So we learned during that decade how to run executive suites, uh, or later called business centers. And that was what got us launched into our, uh, our, the career. We're on Very today. interesting. So originally you saw it as, what can we put on this property for the least investment uh, as a kind of a holding uh, yep. investment while we carry this property for its ultimate bigger development opportunity? That is absolutely right. Absolutely interesting. right. And uh, after that, portfolio was uh, sold. Uh, myself and a couple other partners got into the business uh, conventionally, uh, business center operating business. Mm -hmm. And between us, we built 195 centers across North America. And we're the largest uh, a privately held uh, business center operating company in the world at that time. And that portfolio was sold in, uh, in between April and August of 2000. Okay. I bought the other two partners out of the remaining small part of the company. There wasn't much left to it. Uh, and started what is today the Alliance Business Centers Group. Today, uh, and from 2001 onward, we're a peer services company. Uh, I decided that I didn't like the business model of a classic business center ownership where you okay. lease long-term uh, and release short term. Uh, the, from a revenue point of view, it can be very good business, uh, but it's also subject to um, variations in the marketplace, market timing issues, geographic issues. Uh, it's very capital intensive. And because of the lease liabilities, um, the balance sheet doesn't always look as good in, if you want to value the company. And I'd been involved with a couple of software companies during that period, and I thought, I, I really like software and I really like. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the business models around software as a service. And so we set out to develop what is now Alliance Virtual Offices and a, a group of companies like that, where we own the customer rather than the center. In many respects, it's a real estate version of Expedia. Um, if you've ever bought a plane ticket from Expedia or uh, rented a hotel or anything like that, you recognize that 
Expedia owns you as a customer. Hilton doesn't, or American Airlines doesn't. You are Expedia's customer, and they have a wholesale agreement with various service providers. We do the same thing today in real estate, focused on virtual officing, meeting and conference rooms, business services around live reception and telephony services, as well as office space. So today, in our system, you can open 10 offices in 10 cities in 10 countries in 10 minutes, uh, just like you'd book hotel rooms. And so you then have arrangements, contracts, uh, uh, partnerships with the physical virtual office locations, if that's what the customer is, is part of what they want, because it's, it's more than just that. Uh, but when I, as a client, sign up with you to use your services, you, you, that's transparent to me, or not transparent, but that's, that's not something I have to worry about. You provide me those connections and resources, whether it's a physical suite or all of the other virtual services. Is that right? That, that is correct. And uh, we're, we're somewhat of a marketplace in that regard. And okay. that's, that's really why people come to us is for Got choice. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to, again, I'll use Expedia, good friends over there. If you go there, you can say, hey, I want a three-star, a four-star. Uh, my budget is something. Uh, these are the dates I need to be there. Um, I have a, a brand preference. And you can go into the marketplace and find good value for money. Um, we're exactly the same, except we handle the daytime needs of businesses rather than the nighttime needs, yeah. like hotels yeah. do. Um, and, and if we I were starting a company that I, and I want to have a presence in Dallas and San Antonio and in Houston, instead of individually having to find, let's say it was, again, virtual space or, or uh, shared suite space, I don't have to go and do those three separate transactions. I do that through you. That is correct. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, we're specialists in many regards in handling um, the needs of uh, growing companies, whether they have one office and need two or whether they have hundreds of offices and need thousands. Um, mm-hmm. We're specialists in helping to manage a complete real estate portfolio virtually for a company. I see. And helping them to restructure their uh, uh, organizational uh, environment. Um, so many companies today are contracting rather than employing. Uh, right. We're in a gig world of the gig economy. Uh, and in that model, uh, a company says, wait a second, I used to have 100 employees in that market. Now I have 10 employees and 90 contractors. But those contractors still need a place to work or a place to gather or a place to meet people. And we need to not lose our business presence in those markets. So we need addresses and live reception services, et cetera. You really help to restructure the operating format from an HR and a management perspective of many companies, not just be a, a available service provider. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. All right, before we continue on here, I want to go back, though, to that epiphany moment that you had when you were uh, with the Yop brokerage and you overheard that meeting. Uh, so that the key takeaway there was, okay, these wealthy people, one of the common denominators is they have their own business. They don't work for somebody else. Um, what else 
do you take away from those years working with those successful wealthy people? And I'm not, you know, I want to put the the celebrities aside because that's a whole different thing. But the, oh, they're the goofy. Who, Let me yeah, tell you, exactly. they're goofy. <laughs> yeah, they, they, you know, we don't learn much from that, right? What we learn from, in, in my opinion, is the people who built a business or took over a business and and developed their wealth that way. I think. Were there other takeaways that you still think about and use and and have applied since then? Um, yes, I, I I really think so. And, and the first one you were you were saying uh, <clears throat> about my little epiphany and and all of that and the common denominators and the first thing that came to my mind was action, decision making. Um, in business, you can't you have to act. You have to make decisions. And I think I learned that in sailing. You know, the moment you cut away from the dock, the moment you pull the lines off the dock on a boat, you have to start adjusting. You have to change course. The wind changes, the currents change, all sorts of variables. Traffic gets in your way. You have to steer your course and adjust constantly. And that requires decision-making and action. Um, and what's a characteristic that I found in the most successful people that I dealt with was they didn't hem and haw over things. They didn't worry about the little things. They just got stuff done. Yeah. And I think that as a characteristic, if I were to say that is important, um, uh, one of the most important things. And in our own company, we have a unspoken or very well-spoken rule, I guess, <clears throat> that the only thing you can get fired for is not making a decision. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we'll stand behind any wrong decision that someone makes. But if you're unable to make decisions, you really can't work in our company. Yeah. Love and that, that goes right down to the, 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 the very beginning intern. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you have to be able to make decisions in life. Great takeaways and great analogy with the sailing. I, I, I often say that to become an entrepreneur, you have to be confident in your decision making. And it's not that every decision you make is going to be the right decision. You have to have enough confidence that you'll make enough right decisions that hopefully outweigh the wrong ones. But exactly to your point, if you are a person that gets paralyzed in decision making, if you and even I think it goes farther than I think you have to enjoy being the decision maker at the highest level. And trust your gut. Um, yes. I, I had another experience uh, that was somewhat like the, the yachting career change experience. Uh, during that time, I'd been investing in residential income properties. Uh, and I had uh, accumulated a portfolio of apartment buildings uh, in the uh, Inland Empire area, the Riverside San Bernardino area of California. Um, and... I remember driving out there to visit with our property management company one day, and on the way out along the freeway, I was listening to a radio program, not dissimilar to this, uh, where uh, there was a, a lot of uh, discussions about the economy, and at, at that time, the economy was pretty good, but people were challenging that we were going to enter a, a bear market and, and a number of things, re recession-oriented issues. And the speaker on uh, well, one speaker was challenging the other, and the, the California speaker was talking about California's economy. He said, "Oh, we're the golden state. We've got such business diversity. We've got this. We've got that." Hmm. And just at that moment, I drove hmm. past a sign on the freeway that said "San Bernardino, the all-American city." And I pulled off the freeway, turned right around, went to my brokers, and said, "Sell everything." 
<laughs> and we did. And we yeah. survived what turned out to be a massive real estate downturn. We survived it and profited. Uh, and so trust your gut. Yeah. And, and in order to trust your gut, you have to become a student of your industry. You're, you're never going to be a professor, but if you're always a student, always seeking new knowledge and always seeking to learn from your industry, then you can trust your gut and you'll be right most of the time. Yeah, because that that gut instinct really, it's been scientifically evaluated that it comes from all of those experiences that we accumulate and knowledge, to your point, that we accumulate and then we're able to make that what seems like a, um, an, you know, a snap decision or a gut decision, but it comes. It's influenced by knowledge and experience, is it not? Absolutely, it is. So let's start to dive into virtual offices and this whole concept of virtual working spaces. From a startup perspective, if I'm looking to start a new business. I think some of the obvious uh, benefits everybody's probably familiar with, and again, not having to spend money on building out a space or leasing a space, but what else are you seeing as to the advantages and benefits that startup businesses are getting from going with virtual office services? I think it's not just startups, but all businesses, including including government, by the way. Okay, interesting. the, The key factor that all businesses have in common as a, as a need, aside from clients and capital, is flexibility. Flexibility is critical if you're going to grow your business properly and, and efficiently. Um, and the key constraints to that are long-term obligations. The second largest long-term obligation that all companies have is their lease. The first is the obligation to their employees. Um, the second largest obligation they have is to their real estate. So if you can take that long-term obligation and make it highly flexible geographically, in timing, in model and pricing, all of those elements, then you can materially help all companies grow their businesses more effectively and contribute quite a bit to their bottom line. Uh, So I think flexibility is the key issue there. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, Frank, it, it used to be, and I'm sure such some to an extent still, that having your own place, your own pl- place to put your shingle up, your own building, the the your own campus was a signal that we were a real business, a real company. And that, I'm not saying that's gone away completely, but that's changed a lot, especially for startups and small businesses. Has that been your observation? Well, it is, and it, and and again, I won't limit it to startups and small businesses. Um, I'll, I'll, You're seeing I'll it beyond everybody. that. Oh, goodness, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And in fact, if I were to vertically align the entire marketplace uh, for our industry, uh, vertical and 20% uh, market share pieces, uh, who do you think would be at the top of that 20%? That is using these types of services? Uh Uh Uh-huh. Well, my first guess would be a, a very small business, solopreneurs, uh, startups. That would have been my guess. Well, you you can guess that it's wrong because I asked the question. I sure. Knowing <laughs> that's where you'd go. Um, government. Government. 
Yeah, you alluded to that, which I, I would have uh, never guessed. Government is a massive user of flexible workspace now. They weren't in the past, but they're one of the fastest migrating groups uh, to flexible workplace. After that, without any challenge, it's the Global Fortune 2000. Hmm. Underneath that, it's your classics, legal accounting and financial services professionals. Then you get to regional entrepreneurial, small, medium enterprises, uh, uh, and another 20%. And your startups are the bottom 20%. Interesting. And so the takeaway from what these larger organizations and government entities are doing this for is the flexibility point, Fle right? Absolutely That's the main flexibility. driver. And, and, and here's, here, here's an interesting thing. If you look at the annual reports of uh, any large public companies, um, uh, five, seven years ago, you would have seen that they had a uh, number of employees. Pick a company and it might have said, we have 350,000 employees worldwide. Um, today, when you look at that same report, you would find that they say we have a workforce of 350,000 employees. And that workforce, 25, 30% of it is now contracted. They're not employees anymore. They're contracted. Um, IDC says that uh, by the end of 2017, we'll have 1.6 billion mobile workers. 1.6 billion mobile workers. Um, that's a, a massive force, as you can imagine, and the impact of that on the commercial real estate industry and how those people are moving around is staggering. Um, we have a consulting group uh, with three teams, one here in North America, another in uh, the United Kingdom, and, and, uh, and, and another in, in Dubai, and we deal with a lot of financial institutions that are positioned uh, and have uh, large fixed asset funds. Uh, some of the largest institutions, private equity groups in the world. Um, and every one of them today in their fixed asset fund is looking to understand this change, this flow in the workplace. They might come to us and say, hey, we have a global account and uh, they're growing, their workforce is growing, their numbers are growing, but they're cutting their space they take in half. What the heck's happening? And we say, well, it's because those people are now contracted and they're ending up, those contractors are all going into the serviced office industry. The service office industry combines people, place, and technology all together into a single bundled product and serves that product or delivers that product with a highly flexible service agreement of one year or less generally. It's a rolling agreement, so it can be renewed very easily, but it's one year or less. If you can imagine, take any big public company and look at their real estate portfolio, look at the impact of that portfolio on their balance sheet, and then say, what if we could get rid of a third of our real estate liability by contracting on a one-year basis instead of having 10-year and longer leases? What would that do to our stock value? It's massive, just massive. So companies are looking at contracting not just because it's more convenient and they can hire all over the world wherever they want and people can, can work in place, which is good. Currency issues oftentimes are beneficial. Um, but they can materially impact their balance sheet, which benefits the shareholders of the companies uh, in a, a quite a, a, an astounding way. So the drivers behind the migration to our industry aren't just flexibility at the user level, 
but there are flexibilities at a lot of financial levels as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, and that's what drives that decision at the big money level. And and, and also, I, obviously, what it's creating then, Frank, is that these remote workers then are working closer to home, if not from yes. home. And that changes the dynamics of commuting uh, right. <clears throat> and traffic. And it also changes the dynamics of uh, what they call in the UK, high street, the main street, the little, little town. Um, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of adjustments that go on when people can work remotely or they can work from smaller business, virtual office, uh, co-working centers, uh, centers that have these types of flexibility um, in their local environment, which is another big shift in our industry. We used to primarily build centers in the central business districts of major metropolitan right. areas. Today, uh, we're ubiquitous across all markets as an industry. Yeah, yeah. It used to be that you, you wanted the executive suite that's in that same city center. Oh, yeah, I want to be uh, on Avenue of the Americas in Manhattan. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but I can't, I can't, I don't, I don't have enough demand for an entire space of my own, and I can only start with, with leasing, but uh, with a suite. But now that's completely different, the, the, the dynamics of it. Um, so I mentioned at the outset third place working, and I'd like you, if you would, to explain what that means to us. Um. Starbucks. That's a simple, simple structure, <laughs> simple explanation. And it's, that and it's covers where it. I, that I could go it. into the office. I could work from home, but instead, for whatever combination of reasons, I'm working at a third place. Right. Exactly. And we can don't consider ourselves really third place working for as an industry. We mm-hmm. are really a, a new generation of the activity of officing. Um, and we include business centers, co-working centers, incubators, accelerators, all within the bundle of serviced officing or flexible workspace. Um, third place working is really alternative working. And, and here's a perfect example. There are a number of restaurants today um, that are high-quality restaurants usually that only serve dinner. Hmm, right. Guess what? They now open. Dead space. They now open. <laughs> and provide office space during the daytime. Interesting. Okay, so there's a, a, a good example of, of a, a totally repurposed space that was previously wasting that is now being put to good use. Now, does that facility have the same caliber of meeting rooms and office services and reception, clerical, administrative staff, photocopying and imaging equipment, bandwidth that a, that a, a high-quality business center or co-working center would have? No. But it might just be around the corner from where you live, highly convenient, and you like the other people that are there. Plus, so many of those things can be provided virtually as long as you've got right now. Right now, there is the constraint of connectivity, but that's going to go that, away. That, that is going uh, away. Uh, well. Bandwidth is yeah. becoming like air. Uh, and right. pretty soon, uh, it will be written into a, a, an amendment into the U.S. Constitution that uh, yeah. all government must provide bandwidth to all people. Um, right, cities right. are providing bandwidth now. You can walk around London now, uh, just about everywhere, uh, and have Wi-Fi. And, yeah, New York is yeah. experimenting with it as well. And, and uh, Singapore has just uh, completely uh, transitioned that way. So major cities are saying, hey, people are happier downtown here and there uh, if the city does this. 
it's not that expensive on a big scale to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right. it creates a big business draw and a tourist draw, and it, it makes things very nice. So I think we'll, we'll, we will see much, much more of that. Like I say, bandwidth yeah. will be like air pretty soon. It will be, we'll have a right so, to it. That's right, yeah. Uh, so the other thing you touched on, and I'd like to get your thoughts on, is the co-working space. So, so like for myself, I have home office for the better part of the last 15 years. And the thing, of course, that someone like myself is challenged with is I don't get the interaction with other human beings. I don't, my personality, I don't need it as much, but I need it. And so co-working and, and these other services offer that how are you seeing that balance from where we're out of the traditional office and the social benefits that that provided us and we we seem like we're switching we're, we're coming striking a balance here from becoming completely isolated to working still or having opportunities to gather and work together well what the industry says uh, and and uh, uh is that uh, you can work alone but not by yourself uh, and and that's an important distinction. Obviously, um, people are social by nature; it, it's in our DNA. Um, so we do like to be around others. And here's an interesting phenomena for you: um, when people set up an office today in our industry, they uh, the old adage used to be location, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Personally, I always thought it was timing, timing, timing. But that's that's a different that's a different mm-hmm. topic. Uh, okay. Um, but location, location, location. Well, today when someone searches for a location within our industry, if we look at the map, uh, if we look at the websites in our industry, which we, we control quite a number of, uh, and we look at the mapping, we see someone goes into the website, they look at the home page, and then they go to the Facebook connection. They don't, they don't look to see, oh, what plans do they have? What amenities? They go, they, they see who else is there. What hmm. are the people there? So the concept of community is elemental in the decision for real estate today for the entrepreneurial or for the uh, independent officing user. Community. Hmm. And community is the bridge that helps define where you want, which location you want to select. Right, which, which tells me that while it's a challenge in us becoming more remote, on the other hand, there's a lot more options for me to choose which sub-community I want to be a part exactly. of. As a good example, in your chosen field, you might really prefer to be in a media-driven community where there are other people that are uh, share interests that you have, where maybe you can share resources or, or swap ideas back and forth on how to grow your particular type of business. Someone else might want to be in engineering or a computer engineering-oriented community because of what they do. Or they just want professional image and services because their clients come to them, and that would be more of a classic business center than a co-working center. Um, so really you define the type of center you want by the type of business you do and basically who you want to hang out with. Um, and it's kind of, kind of fun. Um, it's not just a beautiful building and a spiffy design and fancy furniture that does it. It's really the people that live there. Uh, and, and and that, that's very valid and a, and a big component to building uh, your business. Yeah. Great insight there. 
Frank, this has been a great conversation, very enlightening. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today and sharing your knowledge. Thank you very much, Henry. This is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.